Hi, welcome to Reset Your Mindset by Life Stance Health. Myself, Dwight Thompson, and my co-host, Nicolette Lianza, will bring you conversations with leading Life Stance Health professionals who will help guide you on your journey to positive mental health and well-being. At Life Stance, we believe in the three pillars of mental health, mental flexibility, mindfulness, and resilience. On this episode, Dwight and I will be having a conversation with Dr. Carol O'Connell, a psychologist who will be talking about the important topic of compassion fatigue. Dr. O'Connell, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I've been a licensed clinical psychologist for over 20 years now, and I work a lot with a variety of clients dealing with anxiety, depression, and I also have a specialty in trauma. But a few years ago, I was working in a healthcare organization, and I was in a position where I discovered how difficult it was to work with very ill people, very ill children, very ill adults, and how it was really affecting the staff. So I began to get interested in compassion fatigue and how to help the staff, and that led to this interest in mine. That's really interesting. So tell me more about compassion fatigue, what it is, and what does it entail? Sure. So compassion fatigue is actually a relatively new field in terms of being studied. It's obviously been around for many years, but we attribute it to um, Charles Keeley in the 90s. And nowhere is that clearer than it's so new that we don't even have one term for it. There's lots of different aspects of compassion fatigue, and everybody has their own term. So I'm going to give you my sense yeah, of what the different aspects yeah. of it are. So compassion fatigue is when people have just been doing this for a while, and they just get exactly what it sounds, fatigued, tired, hearing the stories, seeing the trauma. It just kind of wears on people. And then there's something. Yes. Carol, by doing this, you're referring to being a clinician um, and being in that therapy setting as the therapist, correct? Yes, but it can also affect other, any people, any group of employees or, or uh, people on, who, have, who are working in the helping profession. So we see this in first responders. We see this in all kinds of medical fields, uh, teachers, um, the legal fields. So people who are working in corrections. Um, clergy, I try to, I'm sure there's other that I'm missing, but anybody sure. who's sort of helping other people and who's maybe hearing traumatic or difficult stories or witnessing it firsthand. Um, right, I right. even have seen people who are family members who are taking care of like, someone who's ill, who I think have yeah. compassion mm-hmm. fatigue That's as well. So, yep. you know, the phenomena can be similar. So it's more far reaching than we would initially think. Yes, it's, absolutely. It's, it's going to encompass more than just first responders or those in the helping profession, but anyone who's maybe taking care of someone, even yes. a family member yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So you mentioned that maybe there are other terms or other umbrella. Yeah. So, so another term that people often talk about is secondary traumatic stress. And a lot of people in this field think of secondary mm-hmm. traumatic stress as similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. So we know from research that people actually can have PTSD symptoms from hearing the stories mm-hmm. or seeing the results of some trauma. And you can actually have nightmares, flashbacks, things like that. And then there's yet a third term. We're actually going to have four all total. Wow. Okay. So a third term is something called vicarious traumatization. And that happens when our worldview changes because of the stories we've heard or what we've witnessed. Mm. So this is the, maybe the um, law enforcement officer who, when he or she sees a white van, doesn't think of, oh, it's a utility van, right, thinks right, of it as right, something right, else right, other yeah, than that. Yeah. Right. It kind of changes your worldview. Now, the fourth term is something called burnout. 
which mm-hmm. people talk about a lot. And burnout is, is sort of different than what we're talking about because one, it can happen in any profession. It doesn't just have to happen in a helping profession. Anybody can be burned out. Gotcha. And there's a woman by the name of Christine Matzlock who coined the term burnout and did a burnout inventory. And so she talks about burnout as having three components. Okay. One is being uh, tired, is that, that exhaustion. One is feeling like you don't have any, um, no impact. And mm-hmm. the other is sort of feeling distant, what we call depersonalization, feeling okay. like you just don't, you're just kind of really distant from it. So burnout is of the four, burnout is more serious. Okay. Um, the other ones can be more transient. So they can kind of come and go. So someone who's experiencing okay. compassion fatigue or secondary traumatic stress can do things about it to sort of help them. Mm-hmm. So what would be some of those things that they can do? Well, there's a lot. So the first thing I would say is no, no, uh, one size does not fit all. And this is what I've discovered. And it certainly depends on the person and the profession and, and just a whole slew of things. Um, But when my colleague and I were looking at this, you know, there were a lot of articles and there was a lot of suggestions on what could happen. And we ended up looking at about five categories of of different types of things that people can do. Mm -hmm. So rather than us saying, you should do this, we said, think about it and through the five categories. And they are um, knowledge about it. So the first thing is to kind of be aware of it. Mm-hmm. What is it? What are the signs and symptoms? Um, the second one is good coping skills. And this is what most people think of, like getting a good place to sleep, right. and, uh, making sure you exercise and making sure you're eating well. That's what most people think that they're going to hear. The third one is support, which is huge. Finding people in your yeah. support group, both at your work as well as um, at home, who, can, who you can go to and say, hey, I had a really tough day, this is a tough situation, and, and kind of talk about this with. Now, the last two are a little bit more amorphous. They're not so clear. So one is purpose and meaning. Um, for those people who work in the helping profession, it's really a calling. It's not yeah, necessarily something yeah. you just put your time into. Right. right so reminding right. yourself of sort of That's what's your, the purpose of why you're doing it. And the last one is hope. So even hearing all difficult stories and hearing some mm-hmm. maybe the underbelly of life, so to speak, uh, reminding yourself and pointing out what ways there is still hope. That's great. Carol, that is uh, very helpful, very insightful. Um, I think one of my things, something that's jumping out to me is kind of the subjectiveness of what you're referring to and how each individual can sort of set their own boundaries. What would you say as far as... Um, you know, I think a lot of the things that you are referencing can be happening to folks and they might not even be aware that it's happening and might not be cognizant of it. What would you say um, to someone looking to uh, kind of protect themselves and be mindful of um, their vulnerability and their um, exposure to being burnt out um, or falling into one of the categories that you reference? Yeah, perfect. Um, so, you know, knowledge is the first thing and education, I think, is one of the main things that, that really getting the word out that, mm-hmm this is something that is gonna happen to people normally. You know, one of the funny things I tell people is there is one group of people that never gets compassion fatigue and that is sociopaths. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I always say, if you feel this, you know, great, I'm not a sociopath, you know? (laughs) So so being aware of this, seeing this as normal, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in certain professions that's harder than others, you know, when I came across law enforcement or even physicians, you know, the sense of like, I I don't, I don't get this, I'm stoic. And so really saying, look, and so when they start feeling these feelings or having these symptoms, they start to feel like they're crazy or they're weak or, you know, fill in the blank. So normalizing that for them as well. And so many of the people that um, are typically going to be exposed to compassion fatigue are uh, the people that, uh, for lack of a better phrase, put a lot on their shoulders and are seen as sort of the strong, 
um, foundation to whether it's to their patients or maybe to um, candidly, the first thing that I thought of think of when I think of compassion fatigue is the family member or the friend that everyone sort of um, kind of turns to on a consistent basis. Uh, leans on. Um, everyone leans on. Yeah, absolutely. Right, there are right. certain characteristics that um, in which people are more prone to get this. And, and here are some sure. of them, but not all of them. A hardworking, um, having a lot of compassion for their clients, um, wanting to be the best, you know, so you can mm -hmm. see where those are the people that you want, very people you want in the role. You just have to make sure that you're still taking care of yourself. You can still be hardworking. And of right, course, we want you right. to be compassionate towards your clients or whoever you're working with. Right, um, right. But it's okay to balance it and, and take time for yourself. Excellent points for sure. And I think that's the hardest part is just taking care of yourself and balancing it. Well, I, I'm going to put a plug in here too. Yeah. I also think it's okay, up, sure. to the, up to the organizations mm. and where people work that it's their responsibility also to set programming, to set, yeah. uh, uh, to create a climate in which that can happen. Um, and that has really be, that's really where the direction of this field is going. Mm. It's having organizations say, we recognize this and what can we do to help our employees? Now, employees also need to step up to it or people, you know, and, right, and take care right. of themselves, you know, they can't mm -hmm. make people do that. So it has to be a real partnership between the two um, okay. and creating this culture of self-care while we serve others. Especially among police uh, departments. I think this yeah. would be so key. A lot of the police officers I've worked with, they, they might talk to their fellow officers, but often mm -hmm. I think at a deeper level like this, they don't want to let on that they're really struggling more with it. Yeah. And so if you came from the police department themselves of kind of approaching this would make so much more of a difference. I think, yeah, and, sure, it, so. and that peer support, there's a lot, you know, you don't have to go to a therapist to deal with right. this. You can. Right. I mean, you know, right. certainly. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but there's a lot of movement towards peer support in all organizations because it is mm -hmm. sort of the sense of one, a per the person's right there. Yeah. You know, you don't have to like go to an office. And that they also had been through it. So they there are these, through. you know, we had one that um, that we were looking into and in, in trying to develop at the hospital that I was working at where um, physicians and nurses and really anybody uh, could go and get this training and be a peer support person. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that, and, and there, I know they're looking into that in the law enforcement field as well, like retired right. policemen who are, can help, you know, extend a hand, so. What do you feel is the most difficult part of compassion fatigue? Um, I think it's that people aren't aware of it, okay. that you, it, it can kind of knowledge. erode you. It's sort of like, uh, you know, erosion is the best kind of uh, way, is that mm -hmm. it kind of like creeps up on you. Like it doesn't, often it's not one thing that happens in a flash. Sometimes it is, but often it's more like the daily kind of grind. Mm -hmm. um, when I was working on some of the hospital units, uh, I remember this one nurse manager said, you know, we're really good when there's a crisis. Like we really pull together. Mm -hmm. But the daily grind, we're not so good at. You know? And gotcha. so I think that's probably the hardest part. Oh, I, I would think so. Which also makes me think of another difficult part of the hope part. I think that you're talking about the different categories of as someone's trying to instill hope in themselves or helping mm -hmm. somebody else with it of, of the hope that things can get better or feel better or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you have any specific uh, techniques that you use to instill hope in people? Um, so one of the things that, that I do, although again, may or may not fit for everybody, is I do have a collection of things that clients have given me over the years. And it, it's usually, it's a note here and there, um, or sometimes it's just a passing phrase that gotcha. someone says to you. And I think whether you, you know, keep it in your mind or whether you physically okay. keep it, there's a sense of, you know, you forget that you have helped yeah. people. Yeah. Um, I good. had a 
I had a friend who's a therapist who um, she heard about this person had been in a healthcare organization when she was a child and she specifically remembered this nurse. <laughs> now, unfortunately, my friend couldn't trace that nurse down, but I mean, gotcha. the fact that we have ongoing, <laughs> that we do impact people years later that yeah. we'll never know. Yeah, about, which that is, is such a good point. Right, right. So let me say this. Um, have you had to battle with this yourself? Is oh, absolutely. We all do. Um, I mean, absolutely. I think um, for me, I'm I'm I, I'm an extrovert, so I love talking about things. So from for me, the biggest one is talking and finding a support. Um, I have had people say to me when I've made this suggestion, they say, you know, I'm kind of not an extrovert, and I don't talk with everybody. And and I say, well, it's not up to me to tell you who to talk to and how. It can be, you know, over you know, once a month over beers with your good friend, right, you know, right, yeah. it can be a knowing yeah. glance right. that, you know, after a difficult situation, you look at the coworker next year and go, that was hard, you know, mm -hmm. but for me, it's, it's always about talking with my friends and my colleagues who I trust and care about and they care about me mm -hmm. and having those people that will hold you accountable, you know, who will That's say, too. you know, Carol, are you, what's going on here? You know, so. Which leads me to my next question was right. if you're someone who's noticing it might be happening to a colleague or a friend, what are some, what would be some tips of what you, they can do to kind of bring it up with them? Sure. Just be like, hey, I, I mean, hopefully this is someone that you have a relationship right, with right, that you want to try to do. That's that's there's sort of two different For pieces sure. to it. So hoping that you can just kind of quietly give or just kind of give feedback and asking them how they're feeling that you may have noticed a change. Mm -hmm. um, that you know that in sending the message of normalizing that this is normal, that it doesn't mean that you don't think they're their job, they're a bad therapist, they're not doing anything. Um, if you have your own story that you're willing to share, you could say, I remember a couple of years ago, I was in this, I've, I've been a manager and I, I've had uh, what I consider high performer employees still get batch fatigue and have to sit down and say, hey, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. So high performing people get this too. Yeah, I think that's. So that's I think cool. we need to not be afraid as a profession and all the professions to kind of not be afraid to reach out. That's mm -hmm. the shift in culture that we want to see. And that's the irony. And you that's the irony that we, and, uh, we are in the helping profession, but we also don't always reach out when we might need help too. So it's so key. Right. And it, it brings up a, a um kind of so a lot of I feel like the conversation so far um is sort of on a micro level, but from a macro level, um what's unique about this is this can affect people in so many different realms, clearly. Um, I think a lot of times when we think of turning to people for feedback or uh, pieces of advice, we look at people that have maybe been through the situation or people that we can relate to and identify with. But as you said, you could be a counselor um, and be going through something that a teacher may be going through. So from a bigger perspective, um, I know that we're not going to solve it here on this podcast, but what would you say for how society can shift the culture and the narrative to um, sort of protect and um, break down maybe a stigma around what is um, what is compassion fatigue. Oh, that is a tall order, Dwight. Thanks yeah. so much. For that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I think the tables are a little bit turning in some of the professions as we talk about this and normalize it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think, and, and as we say, this is, I think training programs yeah. will start to talk about this is part of this is what you're going to bump up against rather mm -hmm. than seeing it as, oh, this is something only a few people do. It's like part of the growth. Uh, Dr. Um, Eric Gentry, who writes and speaks about this, talks about this as a natural developmental process. Mm -hmm. 
And so starting with training programs, and it's, it's interesting, the accreditation program, ACGB, for accrediting residencies and fellowships for physicians is now mandating wellness programs oh, for residents, right. fellows. Now they're mandating it for faculty. So it's good, really, that's good. really, I can, I can speak more to the healthcare organization than else. That's kind of starting to shift mm -hmm. the talking. Um, so I, I am going to throw some gender in here. I think some of the more uh, male dominated uh, fields, fields mm -hmm. it's more difficult to do yeah, that. And I, I and, think so. And talking isn't the only way to do this either, but um, so I, I, I do wonder how that's kind of shifted that it's okay to say, hey, we go through this and here's what we do. But, right. but even, you know, organizations, concrete things like making sure people take vacations, making mm -hmm. sure they have, you know, health insurance and incredible mental health benefits. Right, I mean, right. you know, mm -hmm. not being afraid to take those vacations, not being afraid to take a sick day when you need to, um, mm -hmm. that kind of culture shift can happen as well. I agree. And you bring up a good point with um, the the more male dominated cultures. What would you say when we're looking at um, age ranges? Mm -hmm. um, like I'm thinking a lot of sort of starting even with adolescents who, um, again, to circle back to something we had talked about earlier is, you know, the friend that maybe is the typical point person for um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the stressors going on in their friends lives. Um, are you seeing this a lot in adolescents or? Um, is this something that you're seeing just more in adults um, and working professionals? Well, if you're talking about, if we're not talking, if we're talking about compassion fatigue, you know, we are still talking about those in the helping professions. We're not quite seeing as much just because adolescents aren't quite there yet. What I will tell you, though, in terms of is that people who are new to whatever profession, whatever helping profession they're in, are more likely to get compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress. So being new in the field you're more likely to have it. So definitely paying attention to new nurses, new docs, mm -hmm. new police officers, you know, new whoever. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is I think two things happen. One, either people self-select out of the profession. Yeah. They feel like this is not for them. Right. I, I, I'm drained. I'm going to do something else, which is perfectly fine. Or you, the other group sort of figures it out, mm -hmm. kind of figures out how to kind of manage this, how to set boundaries, how to, you know, let go of what they can't control and how to right. you know manage what what there is their job and i think they kind of figure it out you know people have been managing this long before yeah. you and i have had right. this podcast right. and learning right. from those people who who figured it out is is one way that we're yeah. trying to figure out how to do it like who has stayed in the profession is not burned out and is helping right, right. sure dr carl this has all been really amazing you gave a lot of great points of is helping people understand what it is and then to yeah. navigate it. Where else do you see the future of compassion fatigue? Can we just get the word out and, and educating others about it? Yeah, well, you know, my bigger passion as I've done this more is really the organizational part. Um, you know, really a healthy organization is going to help compassion fatigue no matter what. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, because in this field, in terms of helping people, we look towards the mental health field, but I've also been looking towards the organizational development sort of business field too, mm -hmm. who's also talked about creating healthy workplaces. So communication skills, um, you know, negotiation skills, uh, team building, things like that, mm -hmm. that actually they're quite good at. I think we can learn from that. So my yeah. personal is that it has to, the organizational piece has to get stronger and bigger. Gotcha. I definitely. Uh, sure. Dr. O'Connell, thank you very much oh, for your, I, your time today. We definitely covered quite a few. Yeah. I think just a few takeaways I'm walking away with of just normalizing that it is a typical thing. This is part of just being human in a field where you are helping others. Yeah. That 
it's going to be a normal piece. And so knowledge about that is so key of just understanding mm -hmm. that. Um, training about it, as well as bringing in the organizational piece of organizations definitely mm -hmm. taking the lead and making sure their people are, are taken care of and monitoring them for compassion fatigue is very, very helpful. Um, and then more specifically, I think just with individuals within themselves of balancing it and having coping skills for it and using mindfulness techniques and yeah, things like absolutely. that are all very key. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You, you nailed that. It's something I feel very passionate about too. So I love doing Great. this. I thank you Great. so much for inviting yes. me to this podcast. Thank you. Hi, thank you for joining us. We're joined today by Amy Thompson, a psychologist in our Blue Ash, Ohio office. Today, Amy has joined uh, myself and Nikki to discuss the barriers around mental health and um, the different aspects to that. So Amy, thank you for joining us. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Dr. Amy Thompson. I am a clinical psychologist that has been practicing in the area of mental health for almost 10 years now, um, most of which has been here in the state of Ohio. Um, I see a wide variety of patients, adolescents through adults, um, focusing on a number of general mental health issues. Great. Good. Thank you. Amy, and let me start off by asking you, what do you think keeps people from obtaining mental health support or care? You know, Nicole, I think there's a, a lot of different reasons. I mean, I think that I, you know, I'm feeling as though there are, there's a lot of education and a lot of advances that we've made recently. Um, however, I do believe that, you know, there still is a large stigma that exists around mental health in general um, yes. that often speaks as a barrier. Yes, for sure. For sure. And so, Amy, um, so you've been practicing for 10 years, so you certainly got uh, quite a bit of experience. Um, from, your, from your work, have you found that there is more of a barrier? We can, we'll talk about kind of the different facets to um, just the overall barriers to mental health, but have you found that certain age groups um, or maybe certain generations that you work with have more of a barrier than others? You know, what's interesting, Dwight, is that you know, what we know about mental health in general is that it does not discriminate, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. discriminate against age. It doesn't discriminate against race, sure. um, <laughs> political affiliation, right? right? Socioeconomic status. Um, I mean, we know that one in five United States adults experience a mental health condition each year, right? Yes. One in yes. six youth between six and 17. Yeah. Um, and for those statistics that are given to us by organizations like National Institution of Mental Health and mm -hmm. National Institutions of Health, you know, we know that 50% of that mental health begins by the age of 14, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there are lots of people out there that really need mental health support, mental health education. Mm. Um, and what we know is that are not getting treatment, right? So what we talked right. about before and what we mentioned before is just what are those barriers to treatment and is stigma one of them, which I believe very strongly, yes. Um, mm -hmm. A recent study showed that 
only about 50% of white adults that are needing mental health treatment are actually getting the treatment that they need. Um, And that percentage drops down to 25 to 30% for populations such as Black Americans, Asian Americans, Spanish, and mixed race populations. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though all of these people are needing this treatment, you know, there really are real barriers to them getting it, um, regardless of where they're at. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I think, um, yeah, you hit the nail on the head with the, it does not discriminate. Um, and I think okay. that's, uh, if you just start start to kind of view it from that realm, I think you can kind of have a new um, appreciation for um, just like the sense of urgency that there needs to be when it comes to seeking mental health care. Mm-hmm. For sure, which is a good jump into of what to do about that. You know, what can clinicians do? What can mental health professionals do to help educate or reduce the stigma so people can get the help? Yeah. Yeah, So, you know, I think so much of it starts with us really examining what is that stigma, right? Where Mm -hmm. where does the stigma come from and what's keeping it going? Mm -hmm. Um, We know there's been a longstanding history of stigma around mental illness. I mean, way back when, right? Before before any of us were born, right? Right, right. you know, there were things such as people were thinking that, you know, mental illness was the mark of the devil or mental illness was a moral punishment for someone that was experiencing a mental health concern. Um, Related to women, it was viewed as hysteria related to being a woman. Um, And we had no education around how to treat these conditions. So we were doing things such as lobotomies, right? We were trying to damage the brain tissue in an attempt to try and get rid of these mental health symptoms. Um, And so I think, you know, when to go back to your question is what can we do, right? Mm -hmm. It's really acknowledging that this is not a new problem. And yes, we've made advances for sure. Mm -hmm. um, But I think that we still have a long way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Amy, you bring up a good point. Um, So this is one of the facets we can kind of start with. Talk to me. Tell us a little bit about what you have found when it comes to the way the female population views the importance of their mental health care um, for for oneself. And then on the flip side, how you feel women are frequently viewed um, just from the general population when it comes to the seriousness, if you will, um, of the mental health concerns that they present. You know, it's it's interesting because I feel like women are often finding themselves in a double bind, right? Yeah. Because stereotypically, we are viewed as the more sensitive and the more emotional mm-hmm. gender, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people might view, you know, someone who is sad or tearful or stressed or overwhelmed or, you know, anxious as, mm-hmm. oh, they're just dramatic, just a dramatic person, right? right. Yes. Um, and, and not truly appreciate sort of what that is going through. On the flip side of that, women are often seen as caregivers. So in the same light, we're expected to be kind of strong and keep it together to help other people, right? right? And right. so for women, you know, what I've seen in my practice is just really the validation of kind of what they're going through, um, giving them a name and giving them some education around what they're experiencing, right, mm-hmm. has been really helpful, right? I mean, sure. and yeah. and just helping educate them on what treatment can do to support them. Sure. So, you know, these women, I, you know, one thing I always like to remind myself is it's important to control what you can control. So these women cannot necessarily 
control, whether it's the way they're viewed by a peer um, or just the general population, what advice would you give to someone who is looking to um, feel validated that their concerns are real and that um, they don't need to hear it from anybody else, but um, what they're going through is real and it is um, legit. And mm-hmm. what, what advice would you give to kind of taking initiative to, set, to align themselves with care? You know, one of the things that I also always talk to my patients about is your story is your story. Yeah, right, right. right. And it, exactly, Dwight, like what you just said, right? I can't compare that what I'm going through is more difficult or is not as severe Mm -hmm. as what somebody else is going through, right? And so, yes, to take control of what we can control is to say, this is my body, this is my mind, I know what I'm experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. And so how can I be empowered to help myself Mm -hmm. be better, right? So that I can function better. Yep, sure. And if I might piggyback on that is as you're working with your clients to empower themselves and the stories they might tell themselves in in general, but also looking at that connections with other people, you know, connecting with others to say, look, I'm showing this is my thing. Is this a thing for you too? And, And the power of that of feeling like, Hey, your story might not be exactly like my story, but you, you, some of this is familiar enough and feels similar enough that it feels like you get me and the power of that connection with other people and being able to share it for sure. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and especially in today's day and age, right. Whether that's Mm -hmm. person to person connection within, you know, friends and family you know, able to kind of communicate and kind of validate yeah. with each other, right? Yes, or yeah. Whether that's on a broader spectrum, I mean, you know, for better or worse, this is a way that social media can be helpful, right? Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. number of hash- hashtag campaigns out there. Yeah. So there's a number of different online forums. I mean, you have celebrities that are using their platforms, right? Very true. I, mean, I think, um, you know, there were are some national athletic associations that are now, you know, hiring psychologists and really making mental health of their athletes a priority, right? Yes. You have yes. celebrities yes. such as, you know, Demi Lovato, Lady yeah. Gaga, Mm -hmm. and talking about the struggles that they've been through, right? And there truly is a power in numbers. Yes, for sure. For sure. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Amy. That's really insightful. Mm -hmm. 